Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast, brought to you by Science Technologies. We interview outbound leaders at fast growth businesses to learn their secrets and bring you actionable insights. Thanks for joining us this week. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Enterprise Sales Development. I'm Eric Quanstrom, CMO at Science. This week, fun one. We've got Tyler Cole, and Tyler brings to the table a wealth of SDR knowledge. In fact, he was the founding coach of SDR Nation, used to run his own podcast called The Lowly SDR, and now is at ReachDesk, which is about as meta as it gets because ReachDesk helps prospectors the world over raise their game with regards to direct mail, offline gifting as a platform of choice for you know cracking through to hard to reach prospects. So the opinions that you're gonna hear on this podcast are really, really well-reasoned. They come kind of from the front lines and battle-tested and hardened. I have a ton of respect for the discussions that we got into. You're gonna to wanna to listen for Tyler's perspective on the SDR role itself, because I think it's a pretty insightful one. Without further ado, let's give it a listen. Welcome back to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast. Tyler, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Harry. Really excited to have you. Well, let's just jump right into it. You know, for those who were listening to the intro, they know your background. They know you've had a, a series of different experiences from different angles. And would love to start with where you are today. You know, you're an account executive at ReachDesk, which is a really interesting up and coming company. And while you are an account executive, the reason that we actually had you on here in the first place to kind of spoil the punchline is that you have such a passion for sales development. So how did that come about? Yeah, absolutely. So I got into sales kind of by accident. I was actually a business tourism major. I managed hotels for a while, realized like my best skill was really like the customer interfacing aspect of like just solving problems, understanding people's needs. So I got thrust into a role at a place called Nextiva. I was a full cycle account executive there. Very randomly, I, I knew the VP of sales. He said, you'll be good at this. I didn't even know what VoIP stood for, which was the industry that we were selling in. And I was able to kind of carve out a role for myself by doing obscure things, like getting there at four in the morning and there was an inbound queue, like doing all these things because I didn't actually have like the tactics to like self-source leads. I didn't understand like sales development to that level, but I gained a lot of respect for it during that time. And I was able to kind of like use that role that was very much a, you know, SMB full cycle role and launch that into a SaaS career where I didn't necessarily have to occupy the role of like a traditional SDR. I think that left me with like kind of a lot of respect for the people in that profession and like seeing the grind that it took to actually, you know, get the metrics and results to to get to that level. I look back and I'm like, would I have even been able to do that? So I just kind of like thought, you know, what what can I do to help these people? I've gained this knowledge from a lot of people that were smarter than me. Like, how can I dive in and kind of give back to that community too? Understanding also that like they dictate the success of any organization. Like I I, I can be the best account executive if I don't have great sales development support. Like we're we're not going to meet our goals. So understanding that one, they're going through a, a difficult role, and and two, it's uh, an integral role for like any company's success. Well, and you put the wood to that with, I guess, kind of co-founding groups like SDR Defenders and starting, I think, the lowly SDR podcast. Why do you think it is that, that SDRs just don't get the respect they deserve? You know, I think it has to do with just the immediate like desire to leave that role. Like even the SDR who like grinds it out for two years and gets promoted, they're like, I, 
I want to say they're notoriously the worst at how they treat STRs. Like they're the ones that like these leads are shit. Like what are you guys bringing me? Like you brought me this last week. Like what do you what do you mean? So I think like understanding that it's like everybody looks at them as like low man on the totem pole, and then even the ones that graduate look at the other ones as like low man on the totem pole. So I think it's just almost this like oh this is your way into sales, but you know you don't really know what you're doing. Like you'll learn your way. You'll be like me someday. So I think like people just kind of diminish like the respect overall of that role. Like, I'm really like, picturing like the fraternity pledge turned into the like oh yeah the like, obvious they're, they're the worst ones. Yeah, like and I think just. You know, understanding that, you know, there's these people need the support, like they support your pipeline, they support like your number too. So how can I, how can I get rid of that mindset? And I've tried to like make a good point of that within my own organizations, but like through, you know, my other work as well. So it's interesting, you know, you, you talk about it, like it's the entry point, nobody sees it as the final destination. So that's part of where the respect is missing. You know, you've done a lot of SDR mentoring and coaching and things like that. Do you work with people who actually want to stay SDRs and stay in that space? Or does everyone you work with usually want to use it as a jumping off point? I mean, I think like if the growth structure existed in that path, they would like their skill set might thrive in that environment, but they're like, oh, you know, SDR manager pays less than AE. Oh, what's the role after SDR manager? If I haven't ever closed, I'm never going to be a VP of sales. I'm never going to have a whole sales team roll up to me. So I've, I've always wondered this and I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on it. But do you think there's like a place for like the highly overpaid, like not overpaid from results, but like, let's just keep this kid as an SDR. He's incredible. You know, let's give him 200K to support like a giant pipeline goal. Have you ever thought about that or seen that? Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll even give a, a shout out to an SDR I used to work at with, uh, Blaine Shablevsky, um, and had these kind of conversations with him all the time about, you know, very senior level experience. Um, first time I hired him, I explained what we were doing. It was very complex. He picked up the phone that day and set three CMOs of Fortune 500 companies. I told him, don't shoot too high. He's like, watch <laughs> and uh, set the meetings. Those kind of people, you can't find them. They're amazing values. But finding someone who's going to give 200,000 or even 150 without you just hitting completely insane numbers after the fact, it's almost impossible for an SDR, even in the modern world where people have started to value them more. Yeah, I'm with you. So I think like as by nature, I've been put in positions where no, that hasn't necessarily been like the the growth and development plan, but I don't think it's a, a lack of you know interest in the role. I do think it's weird. Like the people that want to be SDRs forever, they're a unique personality. Keep them around. They're great employees, but they don't come around too often. I'd say most people are looking at it as a stepping stone to the next role. For sure. So you were the founding coach or a founding coach at SDR Nation. And you also do a lot of consulting now. You, I've seen if, you, if anyone goes to your LinkedIn, they're going to see lots of people talking about you being a great mentor and helping them level up and all that. So how do you approach that? Everyone, one of the most common questions we get is either how do I mentor? How do I find a mentor? What is mentoring? So how do you approach helping? I mean, you clearly have a passion for helping people level up. How do you do that? Yeah, I think it's like, it's also how I sell. And I think it's like looking for like the the deeper why behind something like, does this person, are they just money motivated? I can work with that. Like if their goal is just to make money, I'll teach them how to succeed at the role and make money. If their goal is to be the best sales professional, that's a different goal. If their goal is to be the best sales professional in fintech or cybersecurity, that's, you know, a similar goal, but it's going to require unique skill sets. So I think it's like, getting to know these people as like people and understanding what they actually want to accomplish. And then 
I can tie that. If I know what intrinsically motivates you to, to try and to like make an effort, like, you know, the role is not rocket science. I can teach you how to do this. Like the email templates are very similar as I jump from industry to industry. Like you guys have probably mastered that. You understand that. So I think it's just like not just teaching somebody, hey, you need to set more meetings, but you know, why do you want to set more meetings? What's next for you? What do you care about? And those people work really hard and they'll come back and like, they'll kind of like, you know, I, I also weed people out that way. If I can't understand your why, when I'm like talking about mentoring you, like you're, you're just looking for a quick fix and that's not who I want to work with. And what do you find is the biggest hurdle or bar for an SDR to cross on their journey of leveling up? I would say a lack of understanding of, you know, where to get the help or how to ask for the help. Like a huge, like you're already like 10 steps ahead. If you've come to me for mentorship, like it's these people that like, you know, they have a regimented structure of like their organization, like they're uncomfortable with the manager and they don't know how to go above the manager to get that advice or maybe they don't even understand. Like I can look at an organization and be like, you're, you're set up to fail. Like this comp plan's terrible. Like the goals are unrealistic. So I think a lot of people just don't have that knowledge. I tell people that work with me, what I'm trying to do is help you shortcut three to five years of life. And I learned this by working for failing sales organizations by missing quota. Or I can tell you it's going to happen. We'll avoid it on the front end. And like, that's, that's kind of what I, people just don't have the knowledge because they can't have the knowledge. They haven't met the same people. They haven't listened to the podcast. They haven't done all the things to kind of understand the deeper level of their industry. Well, sales development's easy, right? You send some emails, you make some phone calls and that's about it, right? I mean, if you got a great marketing department, incredible products, and you're in a unicorn industry. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) A couple qualifiers. Yeah. But assuming you don't have that, what are some of the things, I mean, shortcutting three to five years off of a development path is, you know, suggests that there's kind of a, a magic elixir here or a lot of hard lessons learned. What are the hardest? I'd say the hardest lesson is you need to advocate for yourself. You aren't an employee of this individual company. Yes, you have a structure that you need to adhere to, goals you need to meet, metrics you need to hit. But I, I feel for the SDRs that have just been killing it for two years and they're wondering why they're getting passed up for promotion. So it's literally coming to that organization, telling them your plan and having a 30, 60, 90 and a one year growth plan. Like I've been mentoring a lot of our SDRs just internally to do that. And like that'll get promoted this this month. Like I think they were like second and fourth in performance. And in 10 year, maybe they were, you know, third to fifth, but they made it known on the front end what they wanted. And like, they've met these goals that were agreed to with leadership. So I think people just assume that, you know, we'll, we'll take care of you if, if you do the right thing. Like it's harder to find a good SDR than it is a good AE if you have a good product that can be sold. So I don't like selfishly, I don't want to promote you in a lot of situations, but if you've made it known and you've done what you took and given me a plan, I can't, I'm a shitty person if I'm going to violate that or not adhere to that plan that we agreed to. So I think that's the biggest one, like advocate for yourself, like sell yourself, build your own brand, do all these things that like are only going to help you. So if you work for an organization that doesn't want you to do it, I'll, I'll just tell you they're wrong at this point. Like there's a right way to do things, but more people want to buy from people they like than the person that like regurgitated like their company's like newsletter or whatever it might be. From the company perspective, when you step into a company and you take a look and you immediately say, okay, red flag over here, red flag over here. What are the most common ones that you see? Like, where are they actually failing most often when you step in? 
we have money or growing revenue calls. We need headcount. Like, okay, but what's going to happen when I get you 10 more people? Do you have the same amount of leads? Do you have any additional tools? Are you doing anything more creatively to reach out to these people? Like, sounds like you're just going to give your SDRs a smaller book and they're going to have lower conversion percentages. So I think people just get ahead of it. Like they're like, grow the sales team. Like on both sides, the AE team is even worse when you grow the AE team before you scale the BDR team, because then you might have a bunch of good reps that can never hit a goal. So I think it's like understanding like you know, what actually needs to happen for us to, whatever it is, create pipeline, raise brand awareness. Like these things aren't necessarily somebody sending more emails or more people sending emails. And is that a, a failure of linear thinking where it's just people focused on outcomes and goals and numbers in a KPI as opposed to how you're going to get from A to B? Yeah, I, would, I mean, you might, you might have a better answer than me here because I haven't, I haven't been in the true like leadership circles, like speaking with C-level on a lot of this. But like my thoughts are people, people don't want to rock the boat. They just do what they, they do what was done before. They work for another company that scaled this way. All right, but did they scale because they had best product in industry or COVID happened in their video conferencing tool or like what did, did they actually do things right to get them there? And are they following a broken model? I think people like I think there's this generic playbook for like scaling a SaaS sales team that people like follow to a fault, like in my opinion. But the psychology of it, like I, I'm wondering that myself. <laughs> so I don't know if you have any input there, but I've always kind of wondered why. Like you guys are smart. You got to hear from doing something creative, like, or you're in the right place at the right time, it happens, but not every sales leader is in that position. So I think yeah, hours hard. and hours worth of content right there, yeah. <laughs> to be perfectly <laughs> honest. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of it's also without getting too deep down the weeds. I mean, you think about how a lot of companies grow and you think about who the leaders are, you know, they report into boards and everything else. And end of the day, you're looking at, at numbers. And so when you say, how can I get these numbers to scale to a certain rate? Or how can I get margins up or profitability? You look at having 10 people and you go, well, if we had 12, what would that do? And it's hard for someone not to say, well, that would improve us by 20%. And it's usually the people who are more on the front lines, the people who have to deal with all the operational issues and everything else, who have to figure out how to make those those two additions without affecting the other 10 and all the things that you're talking about. And, you know, it's really interesting when we were talking before the podcast started, you know, you, we were talking about the kind of questions you ask these companies and the kind of things you see. And one of them you talked about was sitting down and saying, when should you even hire SDRs in the first place? Or when should you be adding SDRs versus building on what your current SDRs already have? And so you were thinking about that and questions like who they should roll into and infrastructure. So maybe you could talk to our audience a little bit about that, you know, those types of conversations that you see a lot. Yeah, I think like at the early stage, like, I mean, you have two routes. You have the one that like they're, they have an established presence, maybe even like an outside sales team that's been selling into an industry successfully. So they might actually have decent marketing at that level. Like they've actually made revenue. They can afford a marketing budget. All right, now we're going to hire SDRs because we need more than just word of mouth growth at this point. But you have a marketer who hasn't you know, run a sales team before, like they haven't trained these people. So they go out and find somebody like me, but then what, how long am I there? Like, I can't really, like, I have to work within the restraints of what you give me. Like a lot of times I'm training these teams too. And then I leave, I'm like, I don't know what happened after I left at that point. I hope that they continue to like succeed and, and grow at that point. So I think it's like the, the flaw of having somebody responsible for a role that they weren't built to do. Um, and it's, it goes both ways. It's tough for the SDR rolling up to them and it's tough for the marketer because they have another, they have five other things that are rolling up to them. They had a full-time job before they deployed a sales development team. Um, 
And then you have the other side where we're going to grow headcount. Like this actually reached us. And fortunately we were in the position where like our product markets itself, you can send things out. Like there's, you know, natural marketing and like social marketing from that. But the people that had a great product scaled aggressively and didn't have a marketing infrastructure. So it's like, no matter how good this sales leader is, if he doesn't have a piece of content to drip or anything to show these people a case study, a product video, anything, like I could be like the best sales leader ever. I could drive metrics at that point, like literal KPIs. And we'll see if like enough spray and pray gets us to a goal. But I think you have both of those, like people struggle to find that sweet spot. And you know, it's it's for good reason. The company scales super aggressively. Like that's wonderful, but like you also need to add that marketing layer in at the right time so that you have support on both sides. You know, it's interesting. You described an archetype of a marketer that, to me, maybe nobody ever tapped them on the shoulder and gave them the insight that said, "Hey, one of the reasons you're going to want to use Outbound is to learn about your market." Right. <laughs> you know, they call it direct response, or at least they used to back in the day for a reason, right? Like you actually get <laughs> responses and it's those kinds of responses that you can figure out all kinds of things, how to position your product or service, yeah. who your competitors are or who your um, target market thinks your competitors are, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what yeah. your target market sees as objections in their path to adopting or even having a conversation with your organization, how to roll forward case studies or case stories into, you know, reasons to care, to have a further conversation. All of those things are are ones that I feel selfishly like, you know, we've we've had here at Science and I get to benefit from the learnings, the daily learnings every single day. But I wonder if the marketers that you're dealing with just they don't even see that that part of the 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 page. Yeah, one of the one of the first exercises I'll do when I work with a company is I'll ask marketing and sales the same question. I'm like, what? Why do people buy? Why do? Why don't people buy? And then you, I promise you, 80% of the time you get entirely different answers. I'm like, how are you guys like this? Like this, you know, segmented from a perspective, understanding what you think is and isn't wrong with your products. Like you made a great point there, and it's uh, I, I learned this from Gaetano. He's one of my favorite marketers, and he said, yeah, 80% of my marketing strategy is just listening to SDR and sales calls and then building collateral around like what I hear on those calls. Like sometimes marketers are like, there might be a new feature and like this might seem so relevant to them. And like in theory, it might be a very relevant feature, but maybe we find out that nobody cares. Like the market's not actually buying based on that new widget that you've rolled out, but they might spend two quarters and $300,000 marketing that new feature. So it's like understanding and bringing those people together. Yeah, Gaetano is awesome, by the way. And working with people like that and people like Eric, that's often the difference with CMOs and heads of marketing is the ones that feel, I don't want to say serve sales because it's not one directional, but the ones that feel like sales is the logical next step and they have to be in lockstep because of it. The ones who spend time working with the sales teams and working with their messaging, not just, uh, you know, we've all had a marketing leader before that says, my job is to generate leads. And the more I generate, the better I measured, the better I did my job. End of story get out. You know, like we've all had that conversation too. And there's such a wide gap in terms of what, from a sales perspective, what we actually can get from an Eric, a Gaetano versus someone who doesn't, doesn't see that big picture the same way. You might get a bunch of leads too, and they might not be any kind of sales qualified lead. Like I don't, I'm so sick of like the organizations I talk to that are just like MQL based. Like, it's like, what does that mean? Like 700 people showed up to your webinar. Like how many people demoed? How many, what was the percentage that closed that showed up to that? Like just engagement does not equal success. And I think like, you know, once 
part of this is just have your marketers re- measured by revenue. If you're not already doing that, like that's a that's a major <laughs> difference there. Like conceptually, you're going to struggle if that's not the goal. But then, if I'm measured by revenue, like I need to be motivated to work with sales and understand like the gaps there. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And you know, one of the things that we mentioned earlier, your current role with ReachDesk. My my take is that gifting and offline is kind of where you know sales and marketing kind of meet in the middle, especially at the top of the funnel. But what's your perspective? How do you see Reach Desk and where it fits? Yeah, no, I think it, I think you're right on track there. Like if you look at my sales process, I would typically sell a marketing decision maker and the bulk of licenses that are actually using my products are, are via sales. So like marketing is actually giving marketing budget to sales in this situation. But what they're saying is, all right, we brought you all this. Our product's interesting enough. Like, let me just give you this amount of money or this amount of resources to run a little mini marketing machine at this point. Like I know if I serve up the leads that are qualified and we're targeting the right people, like you know who's engaging. You can look at who's opening your email. You can see how much time people have spent on G2 or whatever else that you're tracking and giving people the autonomy to do that. And then also like eliminate that bottleneck if you're already doing that, like marketing, not needing to sit there and say, okay, Steve, you can, you know, send a gift card out today. Let me like expense this and track it and do something there. So allowing people to build that into like an existing workflow. Like I was actually uh, selling dial pad a couple of years back and I was a customer of Sendoso. That's how I ended up working for Sendoso. I'm like, wait a second, this works. I have like 0.8% conversions. I'm at 6% now. Telecom is a horrible industry. Don't sell in it. But getting to 6% like was, you know, th- that made the difference. It made all of my pipeline at that point. I'm like, I think they're onto something here. And that's kind of what led to me like actually moving to Sendoso and then eventually reached us. Yeah, Sendoso is really interesting. And, and- it ties into Eric's last question as well. One of the things that stands out about you is not only that you've taken such a passion for sales development and been a champion for it, but also you take some unique approaches. And that's one of the things we love about our guests. We, we try not to have all the standard people over and over saying the same things. You know, you've worked for places that take a different angle, whether it's Reach Desk or, I mean, Sendoso is about as different as it gets versus the standard send some emails and make some phone calls. So yeah. what do you think is the place for, you know, whether it's unique prospecting or thinking outside the box versus finding a system and just running it over and over again? I mean, no, have a, have an ACV that's not transactional. You're not, you're not selling cable for $30 a month. Like you're not selling B2C unless you're selling a very high-end product B2C, or you have a huge distribution engine to send things out to like existing users. Um, know who you target and have an ACV that's north of, let's say, 12K. If you're in that spot and you know who to target, as long as somebody's going to actually advise you on like a proper way to use this, or there's a there's an intelligent person who understands like how to attach this and the right step in the sequence, or you know what are the main use cases throughout a deal cycle to bring this into. I'd say like you know most people can see success. That's part of why I love selling in this industry because I can go sell a pro sports team, a cybersecurity company, a commercial bank. Like all of these different companies have some level of use case for this. It's just about crafting the story that makes sense to them. And that was a big thing when I came over to ReachDesk. It was, you know, we're on every, like the AEs are on every onboarding call. We don't make margin on any sending, which is unique to anybody in the space. So we don't care. Send two things or 10,000 things. Like we're making money off software. So how are we going to approach a customer? 
you better see success from an ROI perspective. We're never going to retain that customer and grow that customer. Like we're not just going to make money off a send that you have. So that kind of leads that like day one, it's like, okay, what are the, you're here for pipeline generation for shortening your sales cycle by a month and for increasing retention rate by 10%. Okay. Now we're going to figure out what we're sending and what we're doing here. We're like, it's not just about, you know, I, I, I don't like the tools or the method where it's just, Hey, here's a thing, take a meeting. You know, it's got to be like some kind of like messaging around, you know, hey, we noticed that you guys raised $30 million in Series B and you hired 20 SDRs and your revenue goals must be growing aggressively. Congrats on all of that. But, you know, reached us as a tool that helps people convert at 70% top of funnel. Is this worth a deeper discussion around how we can workshop some ideas with your SDR team? Like, oh, okay. And then you got to back it up though. It's like, you actually have to show up to that. You got to, you got to write the playbook if you're going to sell that way. So like, that's part of what's been fun about working here. I've been able to like tie those two things together where I'm like, all right, let's, let's build out the playbook. Like I'll have people send me their ICP, the types of companies they reach out to, the types of personas they reach out to. And they're like, Hey, here's my problems. And I'll actually write sequences for them. I'll write like first touch emails. I'll write like demo agenda with a coffee or a lunch type emails for them. So I think it's just like having somebody who owns the strategy and, you know, either work with a great partner who will make sure that 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 strategy is owned and deployed properly or have somebody internally that's really going to champion that and spend time on it. You you suggested one of the kind of like, I don't know, landmines that people can step on. You didn't use these words, but I I got the sense of you know, if you turn gifting into a quid pro quo, you know, where you're just hanging out a gift to get a meeting and making it feel transactional, that seems like a mistake. What are other perspectives that that you feel like, hey, leaders of SDR organizations that are thinking about adopting a reach desk for, you know, their to turbocharge their own results, what's the right perspective that they should go into that with? And what are the things they want to avoid? Yeah, I think you want to be looking at like, one who's engaged, this should be used, you know, not true, true top of funnel spray and pray, unless you, I mean, fine, send out like a charitable donation or lunch and you only get charged if they take the meeting, if you want to do that. But understanding that I should be sending something to this guy that just watched my product video, or he's looking at competitor reviews right now, or he's opened my email 12 times, but he's never booked time. Like, so knowing that, Hey, I know you're slightly raising your hand. I want to get you to raise your hand, like the, the whole way here. And like, do some research, like understand, like this guy's probably opened your email 12 times. What was that email about? Was it centered around like a specific value prop, a specific problem that they had? So like understanding like when to use this. And then, you know, there's- Would you, like, would you almost uh, call that intent driven, you know, kind of like gifting or offline? Yeah, I think there's intent driven. I think there's also like the like, I think the best way to run this is like marketing. Let's say they get, they tier out accounts, like three tiers, and they're going to spend $2,000 per tier, whatever you want to do that. Hey, AEs, SDRs, whoever owns these accounts, you get to put five in each bucket. And this is what qualifies as a tier one. This is what qualifies as a tier two, tier three. And then let them understand that this is your ICP and they can do a theme send to everybody that's scalable. You know, tier one will be a little more money. So they're kind of running that initial brand awareness, get your foot in the door. And then the SDR do the intent-based send, do the, we already sent this out. They're reading something. Hey, we want to do this. 
hey, we set the meeting. Okay, schedule that meeting agenda with a coffee for 7 a.m. morning of. Uh, Zoom Info actually did a bunch of research on this as one of our customers. And it was like the sweet spot was a $7 gift card before a demo. They tried a bunch of different amounts. So it's like, you know, if I can get 22% more people to show up for seven bucks, like this is where it starts to be like massive amounts of ROI when people use a tool like that. And then you get into like the AE use case is even more fun because it's like, oh, okay, I had a great meeting. I got to get buyer two and buyer three to the table, low friction way, do something really like I can do something higher value. Like you get to really get like prescriptive with what you're doing. So I think like those three mechanisms are the best. And then you automate like through the integrations, things like, hey, whenever we close one a deal based on value, they get a welcome kit with this stuff. Nine months into each contract, they get a handwritten note with this where it's like a set and forget that you know boost those kind of conversion percentages across the board. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned writing sequences for people and cadences and things like that. And you also talked about knowing the right time to grow teams. Kind of wonder where do the tool stacks fall into that? So what is an essential tool stack when you're working with a company that you say, okay, you should have this, this, and this. And when a, te- when a company is looking at hiring more SDRs, do they have to have something, for example, like an outreach or a sales loft in place beforehand? Should they be hiring their people first and then getting tools in place? How do you approach that side of things? Yeah, I would rather get the tools on the front end and build the sequences and like let's let's have the problem if there's too many leads for AEs to talk to. Like then we can then we can go get SDRs at that point. But I do think people get like too inundated with the tech stack. It's like your 10-person company doesn't need Salesforce outreach and and six cents. Like maybe you just need HubSpot and you need HubSpot intent data and you can send your emails out through there. You can do your CRM through there. So I think it's like having something that sends sequences, something that gets me info, Zoom info, you know, whatever you want to use for that. And then something to log activities. So it's like, this could be an all-in-one. This could be something that you like outsource to a company like you guys too. So I think it's like just understanding the right balance, not necessarily saying this is the, the right or wrong way to do things other than the wrong way to do things is to have no tools in place and hire five people without a marketing mechanism. Like that, I can tell you will not work any of the times. But other than that, like, I don't, I don't think there's like a premier necessarily like tool for it. But given that playbook of, of kind of like who's engaged, you know, some intent driven, some tiered, some, you know, kind of AE led gifting, as well as, you know, it makes sense on the customer success side to really, you know, spend the time to invest in the people that chose you client side, where is the sweet spot for say a reach desk in, in your market? I mean, it, do you want more pipeline? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, for like that's why I sell in this industry because it's hard to find. Like, unless when you don't want to buy a reach desk is when you don't have true ABM established and you don't know who to target. You're selling a low value product, or you're in a position where, you know, you're basically asking people to do this prematurely. Like, I haven't, you know, I'm trying to deploy other tools first. I need to have people have a workflow down before I just have them using gifting or have additional budget to reach out to people. But, you know, I think we work well. I think it's trending towards an industry where like everybody's going to have something like this at some point. They're going to have some version of it. Maybe they hire, maybe they're still hiring someone in house to do this, but they're going to have somebody doing creative prospecting when we can't meet in person and email response rates are at an all time low and people don't answer the phone anymore. So it's like, you got to have that additional touch in some kind of way. So I want to circle this back to something we mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast. And that is that, well, first of all, you had a podcast, uh, the lowly SDR podcast, and it started off with an episode that was called a broken system. Yeah. 
And you talked about really just exactly that, that the whole system was, was being looked at from the wrong perspective, the wrong angle. Don't want to make you rehash the entire episode, but can you tell us a little bit about the, kind of the, the thesis of all that? Yeah, it's like, if, go look at jobs available at any like large size sales organization. Is there ever not an SDR role available? Like they're constantly promoting churn and burn. It's like, oh, burn you out, see what you got, throw you to the side if you can't get there, you know, or you're not important. We're going to prioritize product-led growth. We don't even need you anymore. Our AEs can run full cycle. They can't. They're 40 years old and they don't want to prospect anymore. I promise. <laughs> like, there's very few AEs out there that are anywhere above 25 that actually want to go do that anymore. So I think it's like the nature of, you know, you're you're not prioritizing the role. You're probably paying too little. Like I think like SDR pays gross at times that I look at it. I'm like, I can't even believe like that, you know, this is and, and it'll be like an organization that pays sales reps 200 k plus and they're paying SDRs. $32,000. Like, it's like, what, where, where did this come from? Like, what do you expect? Like, what are you going to get for $32,000? So I think it's like respecting the role, like promoting those people internally, like showing that you care, providing mentorship opportunities. Like, you know, it's basically like, you got to have that guy that champions that role. Like, hopefully you have that person in your org and they have enough of a say where they can actually do something. But historically that hasn't been the case. Like it's been, Good to see. I mean, podcasts like this and mine and like these communities that have formed in COVID, it's improving. Like, I mean, we're an organization that pays SDRs very well. We have a lot of like, we feed in Ivy League graduates for the most part, people that are hungry and like they're going to be, you know, your top sales performers in a couple of years. But that takes a risk. Like you gotta, you gotta be willing to, you know, pay people more and invest in those people. What I've noticed that's crazy though, is there's a lot of sales organizations where they haven't even invested in the development piece but they're paying them well and they're crushing goals. Like if you just invest in talent, like sometimes the system can still be broken and it works. But, you know, I've talked to sales leaders and explained this to them. They've worked with my SDRs. They're wildly impressed by them. And they're like, yeah, but that's not me. I'm not going to pay more than $40,000 for this. So I'm like, you just admitted like every argument I made was true, but like, you're going to keep doing the same thing. Why are you going to keep doing the same thing? I have a hunch. One of our earlier guests, Justin Michael, has a uh, phrase for this, and he calls it the SDR industrial complex. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I think he's, is he's got a phrase or an equation for everything. Justin, Justin's awesome. Though. He's one of my mentors. I like him a lot. He's a right, <laughs> very unique guy. Shout out to Justin. Hope you guys are reading the new book that he and Tony put out. You know, it's really interesting just hearing that perspective and hearing from the pace, the pay side as well. That you know, I think the biggest fear having talked to a lot of leaders about this is you think about the investment up front, even if they don't have a big development system, just the pay for paying for someone in the first two, three months when you don't know necessarily how they're going to produce. Obviously that goes up a lot if you're paying an SDR a lot more and combine that with the other people that have to put time into them. I think the big fear is if we pay six figures to an SDR and there's this natural turnover where a lot of people aren't a fit, how much money are we kind of hemorrhaging trying to find those, those golden SDRs? It sounds like what you're saying is that when you do pay that top dollar and when you find the right people, the turnover issue and the, the wasted investment issue maybe doesn't entirely go away, but it kind of fades into the background because it doesn't happen as much. Yeah, I'd love to see like a, a metric around what you're paying SDRs at an organization versus like average tenure length. And then even better if you can couple that with what it costs to onboard an employee over like three months, because I guarantee most of these people would be looking at this equation like oh, we've had this backwards for a while. 
Like, cause you're going to get a lot of people that are like one foot in one foot out too. Like, who are you getting at 32 K? I don't know. Maybe I want to do SaaS sales. Like I can work remote. It's sort of interesting to me. Like you're not getting somebody who's like, yeah, this is what I want. Like I've been, you know, I've been watching videos, podcasts. I have a sales coach. I've invested in my success here. Like it's a, it's like a chicken or the egg thing. It's like, is this broken because I'm not paying people or am I just getting shitty candidates and they're not worth more money? So you got to kind of find that balance. Like, I think the best thing you can have is just somebody who gets it internally. Somebody who can at least tell you when they talk to a person like that's doing the SDR hiring that they understand, like, you know, at least with an 80% success rate, like who's going to be decent that comes in. So I think like defining an interview process is important too. Although I've seen, I don't know about you guys, but I've like helped people with the placement aspect and I've seen SDR interviews are getting crazy. It's like four to seven rounds for jobs. Like I'm going and talking to a, a VP of sales and like maybe having one or two conversations to get my jobs. Like, it's like, but you know, what do you lose then too? Like, cause somebody can't do this for eight organizations, but I understand that, Hey, show us effort first, but like how much effort should you show before you get paid? What's actually the right way to gauge that without just, you know, I'm like these people that get hired, like they just invested the most time and studied, which is a skill set. Like it's hard work and like being able to like retain information, but like, are they really the best person? Maybe somebody who skipped out on round three of the interview because they had five other good offers at the time might have been the best person. So I think like making that process better, but I think people have tried to make it better by just making it longer. And I don't know that that's the right solution. I was just going to say, I take it you're not a big fan of those applications where you send a resume and then fill out every detail of the resume into a separate form and all that. I mean, this has become a big thing in our industry of just the hoops that you have to jump through just to try to apply. And you know, to tie this back to what you've been saying the whole time and valuing the role, valuing the SDR, it kind of sends a message from a company's perspective when you say, even before you've taken this job, we're going to have you jump through a million hoops that aren't really going to get you paid. What are you supposed to expect when you're the SDR working there? What do you think is going to happen in terms of trying to get yourself commissions and, and set sales and all that kind of stuff? It's likely going to be the same thing. Oh yeah. And then you get through and then they're like, you know, I've seen the ones where they're like, yeah, it's $45,000. And the, the entry-level person who hasn't had an SDR job before is like, okay, $45,000 base. And then there's a like commission. They're like, oh no, our, our base is 29K. And then our OTE is 45. I'm like, why did you just put somebody through a seven round interview process, check all their references and like, if they're in their right mind, they should decline the offer now, but they've gone through this whole process with you and they might even take your offer reluctantly at that point. But it just sets up this like distrust almost throughout like the leadership and like individual contributors, I think. Well, what you just described, I think, is a perfect recipe for creating mercenaries. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Ultimately, I think that if they weren't money motivated before, like that's a great way to turn that light switch on. Or yeah, or you go find your factory. Like there's people here that'll take low pay that are coming from other industries, but you have to find like that sweet spot. Like there's people that are hungry as hell. They'll work way harder than the dude who's been an SDR for two years before, but like you don't find that on a resume. So how are you getting all these people into conversations? Like the people that I've placed like have the good fortune of like, I'm teaching them the roadmap or I know what they're going to see so they can say the right things and get through the process. But like, if, you know, there's people out there that don't have a sales coach that are just as, you know, driven and could potentially be your best SDR, but you know, they're a bartender and nobody wants to look at this bartender for the role. But I'll tell you, a bartender deals with a lot of bullshit and they have to talk to people constantly. If they can also read and write and they're confident, then they're probably a great SDR. They're on their feet. 
<laughs> yeah, there are so many roles. people like that. You know, um, we've all heard about former athletes. A lot of people like to hire former military. Uh, there, there are so many things like that that you wouldn't normally think of as the traditional path, but actually become great sales and sales development executives. One other thing we wanted to get to while we had you here, you've become a bit of a disruptor. This is a bit of a topic change, fair warning. You've become a bit of a disruptor in the staffing side of sales development as well. And I was hoping you could talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah. So I was doing this just out of like kindness initially. Like I wanted to help people, you know, get roles the same way I'm helping mentor people. Like you don't get what you're going to get asked in this SDR interview, but you care and like you'll be fine at this role. Let me just teach you this process. And I, did that for, I think I got to like, it was like 33 people at that point from mostly like friends and friends of friends at that point. I'm like, all right, this, I love doing this, but this is a service and I have two other jobs that I'm doing. So like, what, how can I not be the, this recruiter that hits me up 27 times a day with like a in mail with a, Hey, it's a OTE of 100 to 600 K great benefits. I'm like, all right, what is that? What does that mean? <laughs> Like is one dude making 600k because he told Salesforce and the rest of the people are making 100 or is the OT 300? Like I don't I don't know. What <laughs> so I feel like there's just a lot of like it, the, nobody's really invested in the individual. Like you know, at times they are. They could be the recruiter that wants to place for the role. So at that moment they're invested in helping you get to that process. Like that point. But nobody's really like advocating for the individual. So I was like, what what model does advocate for like the individual? And I'm like, what about like the sports agent model? Like that person doesn't care if you go pay for the Bulls or the Knicks or the Lakers. They're gonna get you the most money and the best contracts. Like that's their motivation. You know, how can I take that and kind of help people in like the tech sales profession? So I took a model of basically I'll charge you nothing up front. Your commitment will be to pay me 10% of your year one increase. And I'll even, I don't, if you're unemployed, I'll take your last salary. The point isn't to make a ton of money off each individual head. The idea is like, there's a bunch of people that are undervalued by the market and like, they don't know that they're undervalued by the market. So I don't need to now train these people. It's not like teaching them sales and all that's taking what they already have, giving them a zero risk investment. And then, Hey, I'll take 10% of this. 50k more that you made this year. Cool. You made 45k more. I made 5k. We're both happy. I mean, it's been crazy. I've had to, I stopped marketing because I have enough of like a referral base, literally just in the city of Austin, because I've helped like local people here where they're like, yeah, like there's zero risk. Go do this. So I'm trying to figure out how the hell to scale it because I don't have the infrastructure to at this point or the bandwidth. But you know, it's been highly successful from a perspective of helping people get to that level. And it's cool because you're like, that's a level where you're changing people's lives. If they get from like 50 to 100K or they get from 100 to 200, like, and they can go on a few more vacations and buy their kids something like that's the stuff that gets me excited. 10% of the increase is, I mean, seems generous too. I mean, it, first of all, to your point, there's no risk. But on top of that, you know, once you're getting someone extra money, you would expect that someone will be taking 30, 50% of that for the first year because it's it's extra. So if they're only giving it to your point, if they're getting a $50,000 increase in their base and they have to pay you 5,000 for one year to do it, I'm not surprised you don't have to market. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I need to, I could if I marketed at this point. The the thing is, like, I wanted to mess up, the, like, I want to make enough money for it to be worth my time. But I'm like, all these people are sharks. Like, one, you're getting paid 50k less for this role because they hired a recruiter who's getting paid to source. Who's there's so many middlemen in this that are cutting money out of like the individual's pocket. Plus, they just don't know half these roles are like. You know, Eric, I know Eric's looking for somebody and he hasn't posted anything. There's no public job posting. So it's like introducing them to the opportunity. 
Um, and I just figured, you know, I'll have mass volume here where like right now I'm at 40 K. Like if you take, get rid of the outliers, I've had a few people make like 200 K more plus, but like 40 K is kind of the sweet spot. So it's 4 K ahead. And honestly, I could get these people through a process in five to six hours. So it's still, you know, $4,000 for five to six hours of work, but in turn, that person's life's changing. The person who's hiring them now has a funnel that they don't even have to pay. So they don't need to like outsource. I'm not taking money from the hiring partner at this point. So they can source through me, save the 30K. It's easy to give that person 25K more and they're still 5K net margin ahead. So I think I just found a model that's beneficial to all three parties, which is difficult to do. It really is. And you, it, it's a wonder that people aren't attacking underserved markets like this more. But then again, I think that the <laughs> the reason is actually in the explanation. It's delayed gratification, which frankly, our entire society is not all about. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's work. Like it's work to teach these people to go through a process, like especially at the higher level roles when I'm trying to get somebody to VP of sales role, like I'm, that might be 70 hours, like just prepping for two of the interviews. So it ranges, like you're investing a lot without money up front, but where you, where you make the money is you screen effectively. You work with people where you absolutely know, like I actually created a test for this too. Like a shout out to my coworker Farouk who did this in Tableau, but we looked at a questionnaire with like a system to basically give you your market value. And like, I didn't advertise it as like a marketing tool. It was like, Hey, sales reps, like make sure you're getting paid effectively. Like what's your actual market rate based on your strength? Oh, check this box. If you'd also like to hear about how we can get you there. And I had, I think it was like 1700 people responded to this in, in 72 hours. Cause why the hell not? Like, I want to know if I'm underpaid, like I want to figure that out. So it was like a good kind of like product led growth method, I guess. And all of the hiring managers, the world over just rolled over. They're not a fan of you anymore. Yeah, <laughs> well, the, the recruiters don't. The recruiters either love me because they can work with me directly. And re recruiters for a company love me. External recruiters do not, like because the recruiters <laughs> for the company can come to me, and I'm their well of candidates. Like the people that are trying to do like external recruiting, I'm I'm disrupting their model and making it not cost effective. Well, we're getting to the tail end of this, and I think we could probably talk to you for another couple hours in so many different directions, but. You know, I think that's a really fun place to, to cut it short. And I think it's going to lead to an obvious question from our audience, which is if our audience wants to find out more about you, whether it's from the recruiting perspective or consulting or what you're doing at ReachDesk or anything else, where should they go? Yeah, I'd say like LinkedIn is the best place to connect with me, given I got about three different sources that I'm trying to keep track of on the other side. But yeah, reach out to me on LinkedIn. would love to help. You know, even if it's just a conversation around like what what's next for me, I'm feeling burnt out or I don't know if this is the right company for me. I'm always happy to do kind of like an initial call and just help out. And then we'll see if there's a way for me to work directly with you. But yeah, if you're also in the place where you don't you're wondering about that question of how to scale effectively or deploy an SDR team, like that's always a conversation I love having too. Um, and by so the way, there are over 300 Tyler Cole's on LinkedIn. So be on the lookout for sales exec Tyler Cole as the exact LinkedIn profile address. Yeah, I found one. Uh, we were trying to look up like if I could purchase my own domain, my own domain. And tylercole.com is for all of the Tyler Coles of the world to unite and they all tell their story on there. So I'm like, unfortunately, I can't take this, but this is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's cool. a very common name though. Tyler Cole reached us, Tyler Cole, um, SDR and H, any of that will pull it up when you look. 
this is your first test as an SDR. Find Tyler Cole, and then he can help you. <laughs> if you're in trouble, if you can't find the LinkedIn page, I got you from there. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us, for sharing. You have a really unique perspective and a lot of really unique experiences I think our audience will appreciate. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, thanks, guys. Good to see you again, Eric and Harry. Thanks for having me. Yeah.